Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. I'm Alana Rangi. There is no question that dogs have an excellent sense of smell. And I bet you're thinking that it's better than yours. In many ways, it is. But neurobiologist Stuart Firestein says that if our noses were as close to the ground as our pooch friends, we'd have totally different and much more colorful smell experiences. Today, it's all about smell science as Firestein joins the world-renowned perfumer Christophe Laudemiel for a discussion of all things, well, scented. Their discussion took place earlier this year as part of the Rubin Museum of Art's Brainwave Festival. Start with a, a little demonstration. Are they all, in fact, passed out? Have we got them all? Has everybody got jelly beans? No. Not quite? All right, all right. Take your time, take your time. So it's very nice to see this many people out on such a day as this, my goodness, I have to say, um, and interested in the sense of smell, uh, which, as we're going to show you with this little demonstration in a moment, is... Um, it's quite remarkable, even in human beings, where it's often thought maybe not to be our strongest sense, but I think we'll be able to show you otherwise, at least partly today. We also have a little laboratory set up over here in the corner of the room, so we'll be passing out some interesting things to sniff as well a bit later on. I'm going to tell them about the jelly beans. Go right? ahead. Go to the beginning, all right? Yes, and we'll get that started. So I'll tell you a little bit about this, and then I'll give you a couple of instructions, and we'll do it. We often think human beings don't have such a strong sense of smell. In point of fact, probably the most serious problem for our sense of smell is that we walk on two legs. And so our noses are unfortunately up here around five or six feet up in the air when all the good odors are actually down around eight or ten inches off the ground. We could all actually get down on our hands and knees right now and prove that, but I have an easier way to prove it for you. And, and one way that we know this is that uh, we, in fact, have one of the most discriminating palates of any animal on the planet, and that most of what we typically call taste really uh, in the industry uh, is more properly known as flavor, which is a somewhat complicated sensory experience that consists of taste, which are the, simply the four or five primary tastes of sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and so forth that are on your tongue, some sense of texture, temperature, things like that, but about 80% of it is really your sense of smell. And I'm going to show that to you now with these jelly beans and show you how discriminating and how important your sense of smell actually is and also how you can be kind of fooled by it. So here's, uh, you have to listen to all the instructions first. Right? What you're going to do is you're going to take one of, we left you two jelly beans, but you only need one. The other one you may enjoy at your leisure during the, <laughs> during the rest of the afternoon. <clears throat> so you take one of those jelly beans, and holding your nose, you'll put it... Wait till I, wait till I give you the go-ahead, because you have to know the whole thing before you get started. What, what you'll do is you'll hold your nose and put the jelly bean in your mouth and chew it up, but leave it in your mouth. Don't swallow it. So chew it up and notice what you taste, which should pretty much be a sense of gloppy sweetness. So there'll be a texture and there'll be a sweetness. Then you can unplug your nose, as it were, and instead of breathing in, actually, I suggest you breathe out, all right? So, everybody, hold your nose, jelly bean in your mouth, chew it up for a little bit. You'll notice that it's sweet, it's gloppy, and then when you've got it chewed up a little bit and you've noticed all that, undo your nose and breathe out gently. Yeah? Now there's the flavor of the jelly bean. 
So that's all your sense of smell. All of that comes through your sense of smell. And it comes through what's called the retronasal pathway, which is that as you chew, you actually force air up through a, a rear pathway to your olfactory epithelium, a small piece of tissue in the very top of your nose. And when you concentrate odors, as you do by chewing them in your mouth and warming them and liquefying them, and then you push them onto this tissue, well, you smell them quite well, actually. And you have, as I've said, a very, a very, very discriminating palate, which is really our nose at work. So that's just a little demonstration as to why you ought to be interested in, in the nose and, and how potent an organ it really is. And the human beings have quite a good sense of smell that we use in many, many ways. Maybe I can just add, yes. so everything you're going to hear today is something you can apply, as you could see uh, right now, you can apply to uh, when you eat uh, or when you do some uh, degustation of uh, special uh, meals or maybe some of you are very keen in wine tasting or uh, chocolate tasting or tea tasting and everything. So everything we say here, you can apply to all these things. And then uh, further on also, it applies to any kinds any kind of products that smells. So that means uh, your shampoo, your laundry detergent, your soap, everything. So not just maybe the fragrances that you would wear or some fragrances that you would say see in a gallery. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is really about the sense of smell in general. We'll have a few examples, but you really have to realize this is your nose is with you uh, every day, every night. And uh, <laughs> this applies to every single thing. All right, so, so we thought we'd lead off with a, a sort of a little scientific explanation of the sense of smell, a very brief introduction to that, and then some of the chemistry of the sense of smell, which is quite a remarkable bit of chemistry, as well as some demonstrations of it. It's easy for me probably to convince you that really everything that you all know about the world around you comes to you through these little holes in your head. And behind each one of these little holes in your head, uh, is a specialized tissue which is capable of receiving some kind of physical energy which we call stimuli and processing it and telling your poor brain which is stuck in a dark wet place deep inside your skull with no direct access to the world telling your brain about that world. So we know something a fair amount about many of these things not everything about the visual sense in particular color and the acoustic sense and one of the things about these senses is that they tend to vary. The physical stimulus of light or sound varies along a single physical dimension. I mean, very simply, for example, that in the sense of, of sight, we have three different kinds of photoreceptors in our eye, and they're sensitive to different colors, different peaks of colors. And because they overlap in their sensitivity, these curves, we're able to see what? hundreds, thousands of different hues and shades. I know there's a button on the computer here that says uh, millions of colors on your display. I don't really know if that's true or not, but clearly a large number of colors. But it all varies along this single dimension wavelength. And the longer or shorter the wavelength, the different the color. Similarly, in the case of your ear, what your ear does is it takes very complicated sounds and breaks them down into their simple sinusoidal waves, which are either high frequency or low frequency, sends that to your brain, which builds them back up again into these complicated sounds. But again, the change is along a single physical dimension, in this case, wavelength. The sense of smell is a bit different. Mm. Because even in the case of something like a rose, 
which is an immediately identifiable sort of uh, uh, an odor. In point of fact, here are just a few of the major chemical constituents of the smell of a rose. And this is the way we draw chemical formulas. These are all indicative of carbon atoms. They're organic chemicals, not so important. But you can see plainly, even without being a chemist, that they all look quite different. They, have, they vary along multiple dimensions, not a single dimension. So they have different atomic compositions. They have different molecular weights. They have different levels of volatility or hydrophobicity. Some of them have rings. Some of them are just straight chains. Some have these different groups at the, at the end of them. Um, they're all different. They're bulky or they're short or they're long. They have all of these different things. And we have one of these odors, I guess, right? In fact, geraniol, is that what we're... So right. we are so going to come. smell a straight molecule. So it's very rare that you have the opportunity to smell, well, unless you're a chemist, of course, that you have the opportunity to smell just one molecule alone. Huh? So as Stuart said, you have maybe 300, sorry, 300 molecules in a rose. Uh, of course, some you have uh, much more than others, so maybe like the top 10 or 20, it's already 80 to 90% of the rose scent. The one we're going to smell, which is geraniol, is a key, key uh, molecule found uh, in roses. And uh, so we're going to distribute you smelling strips. You'll have one for two people. And I think it's totally enough to, to smell and to see what we're talking about. So of course the question then is how does the brain, how does the brain manage this curious uh, sensory ability, which varies along multiple dimensions, multiple physical, chemical dimensions, which is different in many ways than the other senses. So how do we map this into the space of the brain? How do we decode this world where we can smell literally hundreds of thousands, potentially of odors, molecules that are these organic type molecules which make up the odor world. Um, I guess even humans, we believe, can smell some at least 10,000 or so. Mm -hmm. That's what's in the catalogs. And we can discriminate between three or 4,000. And that really doesn't even include so-called malodors, which are bad-smelling things, which you often yeah. don't find as many of in the catalogs, I guess, right? Yeah, well, we do have a few. Uh, so this one, uh, yes, is geraniol. So as I said, it's, uh, it might be uh, 10 to 20% of uh, a natural rose, so you find this in natural roses. Of course, we create this, we have ways to make this molecule on the side in the lab so that, uh, because we wouldn't have enough of all the roses in the world to uh, have enough geraniol in our palate. And you see how it's a little bit, uh, bon, a touch floral fresh, but you can see it's also uh, quite citrus. Huh? Uh, it's also a little bit metallic. Uh, it's also a little bit green. And uh, depending, the way it works is that depending on what we do in perfumery, we have at our disposal uh, the full rose essence, which we'll smell later, and you'll see how it does not smell like a fresh rose either, like a fresh cut rose either, the, the rose extract. We have that, and it has a certain character, and then we have every single molecule, or not all of them, but many of them, the chemists were able to recreate them in the lab, to have them also one by one. So if you wish, it's like you have the, the bird song or the little stream in the mountain, that's a certain sound, and then the, the chemist plus, or let's say the physicist plus the musicians were able to decompose this sound in different notes, and then every note then is available for the musicians to recreate many more sounds than what you have just in nature. And here the same, you can see how if we want to do something very fresh, 
very uh, abstract or very, uh, uh, we would say, contemporary, we would use this molecule alone with many other things, of course, to create a scent. Uh, you can see this measure so a little bit chemical, what we would call chemical, but it's because it's a molecule alone. There's nothing to polish it around it. But how with a, a molecule alone like that, it's like a note on the piano, you can recreate some scents that don't exist in nature or some concepts that are uh, further than what you just have in nature. Uh, later we'll smell rose oil when we, we talk about other things maybe so that you can see the difference. So we have uh, many of those. Some of them smell quite nice. This one I would say smells quite neutral. I, would, I wouldn't say it smells super nice. Huh? It's a little bit uh, metallic as I say. Uh, and some of them uh, smell really pungent. Some of them, they are really hard to describe. They're just uh, uh, creations from uh, the chemist. And so we are very, uh, perfumery and chemistry are very much in tune. You could say like musicians probably, or architects, let's take the, the example of architects. They, you know that architects are very, very uh, close to people developing new materials. Uh, new building materials, but also new decorative materials, new effects, new shapes, uh, new textures because it's going to help them to create the building of the future or to express an emotion they haven't been able to express before. And it's exactly the same in uh, perfumery. Uh, voilà. So you see how we, we look at things huh? uh, among all these ingredients that we, that we have. Had a, good, had a good whiff of all that then? All right. So these are... Uh, this I can mention here, this, this table. I like this table because it really shows the... Uh, parallel between the different senses. So, uh, and the first thing you have to know is that the sense of smell really works uh, in the big principles, works just like the other senses. And then of course it has its specificities like Stuart already uh, started to mention and then we'll mention a few others. But for you, because probably you haven't learned about the sense of smell at school, uh, this would be like the basics. So, uh, in fact, Stuart showed you the ears. The ears perceive uh, some vibrations from the, ear, from the air, and that has some information in it. And from uh, that, you can either use your ears to cross the street, very bland, materialistic thing, or you use your ears to listen to music. And nowadays, no one, never you uh, hear that, oh, why do we have to have music? It's useless. Why do we have to put money in music? It's useless. Why? No. It is a given for us as part of our uh, heritage, but also of our culture, and the human being likes to listen to music. And we could even argue some, other, some animals even. So uh, the eyes, it's a little pack, I'm not going to be very detailed, but little pack, packs of uh, photons coming to your eyes, and depending on the energy, where they are and everything, you, have, you see different colors, and that allows you to see things. And your, your eyes have... Uh, three receptors plus a fourth one for on and off, you know, like black and white. Uh, so you have four different receptors in your eyes, and then with that, they make or they, you see everything you see. And the nose is the same, except that the information does not come from a vibration from the air, does not come from a little pack of energy traveling to your eyes. It's uh, molecules that are traveling. Eh? But it, otherwise, it's exactly the same. It gives you information about where the molecule is coming from, and whether you're smelling your dirty socks uh, to see if you can wear them one more day, you know how the kids are, <laughs> no? or, or whether you want to enjoy something that is uh, 
um, beautiful natural or beautiful created by the perfumer, for instance, the interpretation of happiness by a perfumer or the interpretation of uh, hot metal or, or whatever we, we, we want. So it's exactly, you should see it exactly the same way, the same challenges, the same kind of inspirations also for a perfumer as for a musician or for an architect. It's really uh, very, very similar. And um, the, the one thing you can see here in this, uh, in this column is <clears throat> how the sense of smell is still behind in the way we go about it for different reasons. It's been very difficult to study. For instance, um, Stuart did not mention that, but he can tell you the sense of smell we have instead of three, four different receptors, we have more than 340. Uh, 340 receptors, different ones uh, in your nose, and of each of them you have uh, millions. Or, uh, so it's like a very complex system, and also in terms of uh, culturally, it's a sense that was very linked to the animal world, to religion, to things like that, and that made it a little bit uh, backstage versus the other senses. So it was both on an academic scientific level that the other senses got developed and got explored much faster, but now we are, get, we are getting to it. People like Stuart and, and some other people are really catching up, and you see more and more studies about the sense of smell and how uh, fabulous it is. And, but for now, we have all this kind of vocabulary, which is much more negative for the sense of smell. We talk about dalliance, or we talk about esoteric words, just like isomery in chemistry. But in other areas, you would talk about nuances. You would talk about shades. Uh, in painting, you never talk about a dalliant, that the white paint is a dalliant. And then, oh, if you have too much white, it means uh, uh, it's not good or too much solvent. No, white is used in paint because you can achieve many, many shades. Uh, when something is too strong, you can tone it down. You can... So uh, there is, with the same uh, exercise, you use uh, diluent in perfumery to tone down certain molecules that are extremely, extremely potent. Uh, you use diluents for uh, different purposes. Now, it's true that you can use a diluent also to make the fragrance cheaper. So some people have taken advantage of that. But diluents per se are not a bad thing or are not, it's a tool in perfumery, just like, uh, or like you would have a muffler on your trumpet or what is it, what is it called? A yeah, muffler? Yeah. 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 So you can also, sometimes you can decrease a note and then that makes it work properly. Like you can play the trumpet very uh, low, very quiet. But you know that if you put a muffler, it's another kind of quietness. It's exactly the same in perfumery. When you create a formula, you want it stronger or less strong. We have different ways, different strings to make it stronger or less strong. It's not just by decreasing an ingredient. Uh, so it's really, we have all these uh, parallels. And this is what, when you don't know something about perfumery, uh, well, it's hard to find some... Uh, uh, books, there just have a few books out there, but when you don't know how to uh, uh, listen to the, the marketing talk that is given to you or when you read in the internet, think of other arts or other disciplines and see how you would go about it in those disciplines and the same kind of gymnastic you can do in perfumery. So sometimes you, you might not know how it, it works, but you can have the same sense of critique, positive or negative, and, and etc. So I think it's a good starting point to tell you, yes, it's a weird thing, but it's very much there. It's as important as the rest. I think Stuart is going to mention that now. We're going to uh, catch up on this. 
uh, it's as important as the other senses. It has some very uh, specific uh, things, the way it's wired in the brain and the way you create things. Because I'll just mention one last thing, is that molecules are matter. That's the big difference. Uh, if you look at vibrations and photons, vibrations, well, the air is matter, but vibrations, it's, you cannot really feel it, you cannot really touch it. And when you listen to music, you don't consume the CD. Uh, you can listen to the CD a thousand times, uh, it's still going to be there. When you look at La Joconde, you are not consuming La Joconde. Uh, and you can see it in the internet. Uh, same with the, bon, the eyes. The problem with the molecules is that it's matter. So each time you smell something, you consume a little, a little piece of that thing, which is, physiologically speaking, is also very, very interesting. Eh? So, and that, that means also the way we work, the way we create things, it imposes quite some logistic, quite some, uh, it brings some specificities, but it's also fascinating, of course. But uh, otherwise, everything is the same. Voilà. All right. <laughs> so uh, I'll just pick up for a moment on something Christophe said, which is that for some time, the sense, study of the sense of smell from a scientific point of view <clears> was <throat> perhaps a little bit of a, a cul-de-sac of neuroscience, if you will, where, as you might imagine, more interested in the eyes or the ears. For one, from, a, of course, a clinical point of view, they seem more important to us, blindness or deafness or... Uh, more debilitating in some ways than the loss of sense of smell, although we might speak later on about the loss of the sense of smell, which is a serious disability. Um, but we've come to realize now over, I'd say, the last decade or decade and a half that studies in the sense of smell actually, it turns out that this sense is a wonderful model system for many, many fundamental questions in the rest of the brain. For example, the most obvious one being simply molecular recognition. As Christoph mentioned, we have this large family, this large gene family of receptors, over 350 of them in humans, some more in other animals, in fact. And these kinds of receptors are in the same family, the same kind of protein, the same kind of receptor that your brain also uses to detect and discriminate dopamine, serotonin, acetylcholine, drugs like ecstasy, things like that, so to, to bring it back a little bit. So, so we're learning a great deal about how it is we recognize molecules but from the olfactory system and how this is done elsewhere, not only in the brain, which is my main interest, but even elsewhere in the body as well. So there are many, many interesting things about the sense of smell, it turns out, that, um, that also relate to general studies of neuroscience. Maybe I, I mentioned the, about the, the stem cells. The, oh, also, yes. the olfactory um, cells are the only, not the only one, there are another, two other little kinds. But you know when you, when you are born, you are born with a, um, a pack of neurons, basically. Eh? And then you don't create more neurons as you, as you grow. You have this, uh, this bagage and then they die every day, and but you still have plenty to live a long life, but they don't regenerate. Huh? If you cut uh, or if you lose a limb, it does not gen uh, regenerate. Now, the olfactive cells are among the very, 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 very few cells in the brain that regenerate. So every couple of weeks, you get a new set. Well, it's not like it gets scratched and then you get... So, uh, but each of them is uh, regenerated. So you have a few stem cells in your brain that create new neurons, olfactory neurons, regularly. And that's very unique, and I know scientists are also looking at that to very see if, for instance, we cannot 
then apply that or get those stem cells to create neurons for other applications like when you, you've had an accident and you, your spine got uh, damaged or, or things like it's that. A, so they're yeah. very, very uh, it's, it's interesting. Not only interesting, it's a, an extremely robust phenomenon. Mm -hmm. We won't get too far off on this, but for example, if experimentally in, let's say, a, a mouse or a rat, you sever the olfactory nerve surgically and then let the animal recover, then uh, within about three to five days, all of the neurons in that animal's nose, and I should point out, by the way, that even though these are cells that are living in a tissue in the top of your nose called the olfactory epithelium, they're true neurons, just like the, 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 um, the cells in your retina are real neurons. They embryonically come from the same cells that make your brain, and they are a part of your brain. They've just simply been pushed out into the peripheral organ a bit so that they can have contact with the sensory stimulus. So they're true neurons, and, and if you cut their, uh, their, what are called their axons, the sort of cable that gets sent back to the brain, then by damaging them in that way, uh, they'll all die. Within three to five days, all of the neurons in this mouse or rat or human epithelium, because it happens as the result of accident in humans, they'll die off in three to five days. But if you look again in about five to six weeks, between eight and 10 million brand new neurons will have been regenerated and the animal will have regained its sense of smell in most cases. So it's a very robust phenomenon. I'll give you a, a, a quick hint in my laboratory. We just, in fact, have this result that we've sent off yesterday for publication, because one of the questions was, how does that work with age? Is that, is that phenomenon still there with age? We know that as you get older, you make fewer cells on a regular basis. There's less replacement going on, and, well, I'm fond of saying I mean, you lose your sense of smell, you lose almost everything as you get older except weight, as far as I can tell. <laughs> that, that seems to stick around. But, but everything else goes. So including, including your sense of smell a bit. Um, but what, we, what we've learned is if you injure that, if you do that procedure, that operation, and cut the, um, cut the nerve, then all of those cells wake up even in a very old mouse, say a 24-month-old mouse, which is quite old, and regenerate 8 million new neurons. It's so like a tree, it, like a tree that you prune. Yes, yes. So maybe we the should do that with remains there no? even quite, quite late in life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's what we do. You could, we should prune the so perfumers yeah. once a year. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so let me tell you quickly a little bit about the neurobiology of, of smell. Is that all right? Yeah, no, no, very yes. good. Perfect. All right. Yeah. So and I'll make this painless, I, I promise you, or as best as I can. This, is a, this doesn't look so painless, I guess, because it's a human head cut in half, of course. Um, <laughs> here's the tongue and some nerve innervation there for taste. This, then, is the hole in your nose and the nasal cavity. And it's at the very back of the nasal cavity where you have this, this sheet of tissue with these neurons on them that have these 350 receptors in them. And you can think of those receptors as sort of a lock and the odor is a sort of a key. And so if the key fits the lock properly, then it activates it and that message gets sent back to the brain through a very, very thin bone. You can barely see it here called the cribiform plate. It will not be a quiz, so don't worry about this. And of course, here's the rest of the brain here and lying directly under the frontal lobes of the brain is this small piece of tissue called the olfactory bulb. And uh, again, part of your brain. Uh, in fact, it's a kind of a cortex, so it's part of the, the higher brain. Um, and these cells here then send their messages through this cribriform plate with these thin little cables called axons to targets to other cells here in the olfactory bulb. And these cells in the olfactory bulb, then they send their axons along this 
trail here to an area of the cortex called the olfactory cortex, which happens to lie very close to the taste cortex. And it's one of the reasons why, even though you did this experiment with the jelly bean, and I think you're all convinced that the flavor of the jelly bean is olfactory, you still believe that you taste it in your mouth. You do not have the experience of tasting a jelly bean or any food in your nose. And there's some cute bit of wiring up here that, that does that that we don't quite understand. But you should know that your brain plays tricks on you all the time. And that's just one example of them. Um, what's especially interesting about the olfactory system then, well, let me show it to you sort of now from underneath the brain. So here's the olfactory bulb, and here's this tract of nerve that goes back to the olfactory cortex. But note also how close it is to structures such as the amygdala and another area of the brain called entorhinal cortex. And these are areas that we know are very involved in emotion and emotional memories and things like that. And we can talk about that later. I'm sure you all have the experience of smelling something and it bringing back this kind of Proustian vivid memory from when you were much younger or, or uh, some particular experience. And this is a very strong effect that we unfortunately know very little about, but nonetheless is certainly worth considering. One of, the, um, one of the most interesting things then is that from the outside world, here if we go back to this piece here, from odor molecules being sniffed up into your nose and interacting with these cells, so they make a connection here in the olfactory bulb, and then these cells make a connection here in the olfactory cortex. So from the outside world to cortex, which is higher brain tissue, there are only two synapses in the olfactory system. You can see that here in a very old drawing by a very famous neuroscientist, Spanish neuroscientist named Ramon y Cajal, who was one of the first people to really look at the deep structural cellular anatomy of the brain. And here he's showing, I think I'm losing this pointer a little bit. Here he's showing, these are the cells in your nose. I don't know if you can see those. Maybe we need another pointer if somebody has one in the, in the crew here. Anybody have a, another laser pointer? It looks just a little, freedom. all right, maybe it's there again, okay. Maybe my thumb is wearing out, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, so these are the, the sensory neurons then in your nose, and they send these little cables back, and they contact other cells here, these cells here that send projections, they make connections here, and then the, so that's synapse number one, and then these cells send their axons, that's this tract here, back to the cortex where they interact with cells back in the cortex, and that's synapse number two. Now, there's some processing in between, and there's some other cells involved, but to go from the outside world to cortex in the olfactory system is just two synapses. If this were the visual system, you would still be in the outer retina. You wouldn't have even gotten into the inner retina, let alone back into some part of the brain or some... Le or some yeah, uh, in four steps, you're still in the eye. You're still in the eye. Yeah, you're yeah still in, in two the steps, eye. you're in the deepest part of the brain. So it's, yeah. uh, so it's quite a remarkable sense in that, in that way, and one that we believe, again, scientifically, we have, we have the possibility of solving this. I mean, this is simple enough, we think, to begin to think of solutions and do the kinds of experiments one could do to, to solve this. So... Uh, well, I, I'm sorry. That's okay. Snuck this one in. Oh, isn't this adorable? Well, I, I always show this picture because, because invariably we get the question, well, but don't other animals have a much better sense of smell than we do? So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, does that look like a good sense of smell to you? <laughs> I think you could do that from 10 feet away if you had a really good sense of smell, right? So, so... <laughs> 
So this, the more serious point here is actually that once again, the difference is many other animals are, if you will, willing to put their nose where the odors are. Indeed, seek them out, if you will. So we meet each other and shake hands. It'd be much more interesting to smell your armpits or whatever. I'm sure I could learn a great deal more. Your socks, perhaps. I could learn a great deal more about you. <laughs> but we don't do that, and I'm not suggesting we should. But we would, we would know a great deal more about the olfactory world. I mean, nonetheless, it is certainly important in humans. Um... <laughs> You just have to watch who you stand behind. I'm so glad to see he can still get a laugh, you know? <laughs> so it is still an important sense in people unquestionably. Now let me just give you a, a very quick introduction to the chemistry, and then I think we'll talk some more about, about perfume chemicals now and how they work on the brain. So this is this thing, the periodic table, that... that um, plagued many of you, including me, in chemistry classes. And the reason why I'm, in fact, not a chemist but a biologist, the nice thing is in the olfactory system, it's much simpler. So virtually all odors are made out of just these few elements. They're all carbon-based. They use oxygen and hydrogen primarily, and nitrogen and a little bit of sulfur now and again, but that's about it. So the chemistry, although not trivial, uh, doesn't require all of those other things there, making it somewhat somewhat easier. So I'm, maybe we should try another. Do you want to try another? Yes, or do you have something smell, you want to? Um, let's smell. Uh, that's kind of the, the science introduction. So, and we can have questions, and I can go and more deeply into it. But I think you now have enough of a sense of so the, the system aldehyde. to understand what we're doing. So what are we going to smell? Uh, aldehyde C12. Some aldehyde C12. Good. No, I can't. It's his slide. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was to uh, illustrate how the sense of smell has uh, some very special connections in the brain, what actually Stuart just, just explained. So in summary, you have to realize your olfactory system is the only part, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the only part of your brain that is actually uh, in touch with the outside environment. Your brain is otherwise enclosed in the skull and only gets information via, via mm -hmm. other, uh, well, other senses or other things. And here, the olfactory cells that are just brain neurons, eh? well, they, they, can, uh, they can detect those molecules, but they are just brain neurons and they are the only neurons to be in the outside environment just floating around and telling you, giving you information about this, uh, this environment. So it's, uh, uh, it's quite uh, fascinating. And um, so here what we are smelling is, uh, it's called aldehyde C12. So you have uh, 12 carbon atoms like you've seen in the periodic table. Uh, aldehyde is a, a family. It's typical that the aldehydic smell is typical of what you smell now. It's very, very clean. And we say clean because it's been used a lot in soaps and detergents and shampoos. And uh, so it's like, was it clean before or is it because now uh, it was used a lot in detergents? Now, what is interesting about that is because when you dry your laundry uh, in the sun, the sun decomposes certain molecules in your cotton, for instance, into aldehydes. So when we say this outdoor fresh effect, mm. that of course the perfumers then wanted to recreate even when you tumble dry your fabrics, uh, is created by uh, this decomposition of the sun. You know how the sun uh, bleaches uh, stuff. Uh, one of uh, the very important components coming out of this decomposition by the sun, uh, or one of those 
components are uh, aldehydes. Uh, aldehydes are also very important uh, from when uh, the skin decomposes. Well, that happens every day, but uh, you know how a younger person, or, uh, or let's say even a baby, does not smell like uh, a teenager, and uh, how as we get older, there is this uh, uh, acidic, fatty smell that uh, develops, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you can really notice that uh, well, that's the way we are made. And this is because the skin decomposes into different uh, molecules as it ages. And uh, some of those molecules, some aldehydes smell very fatty. Some aldehydes smell very much like uh, even a chicken soup, believe it or not, this fatty uh, chicken uh, soup thing. And then some, just like this one, smell very, very clean. And uh, now you can see how we can use that for, uh, to create a, a, a fragrance that is very, very fresh or that we want that smell, we would say, very watery. So how do you, do you create the smell of water? Uh, or you, you put a watery smell onto something else to create a, a fine fragrance, a, a dewy smell. You have to use molecules such as, such as this one to have this effect. You will never get it from patchouli and rose oil and, and cardamom. You have to have, as I said, those single molecules also available. So uh, for your information, Chanel number no. 5, 1921, uh, is uh, what we call full. Aldehydes are key, key, key in Chanel number no. 5. So this story about molecules is not just the, last, the, the thing of the last 10 years. Uh. Molecules came up in the uh, 1800s. And the perfumers jumped on them right away. So as soon as the chemists started to make them in the 1800s, so in perfumery, you have them since 1870, 1880. Eh? All the guerlains that you know are full, full, full of molecules. Eh? Uh, so even the, the oldest ones. Um, so uh, they were always key in the development of uh, fragrances. I'm explaining that because for us, it's just like for an architect, it's not about is it natural or not natural. Sometimes if that's the concept and you want to build a house just with stones and wood, then you can do that and it can be also very beautiful. But you can realize that if you only use stones and, and wood, you can only get kind of a one style or you're very limited in your style. It's exactly the same in perfumery. If you only use naturals, you are very limited in your style and in what it can do and etc. So, uh, and then if you're a, a full-fledged architect that you can create for many kinds of projects or inspirations or geographies or, or for low, low buildings or high rises and everything, you can see very well how you're going to need a lot of different kinds of ingredients, be it uh, naturals or uh, what we call man-made or synthetics. And we don't say synthetic in, in, in architecture. We just say, oh, this is a new composite material. We have all these positive uh, word, words. It's exactly the same in perfumery. So depending on what you want to do, your style, your concept, your etc., we have a whole palette. You have uh, very good naturals and some that are really, uh, what I say, like really low quality. You have very expensive naturals and very, very cheap ones. You have very cheap molecules and very, very expensive molecules. Uh, you have the whole range for everything. So it all depends on what you, you create and, and you build. And uh, what we spend our time doing are fragrance formulas, uh, which contain then a combination 
of those two. Usually it's a combination of naturals and, and uh, molecules. And you can have from, for something very, very simple, like 10, uh, 10 15 ingredients, but bon, often 40, 50, 100, above 100, then we can argue, do we really smell them all? Are they, bon, then there's another debate there. But it's very usual for us to have uh, formulas that have between 20 and 80 ingredients. Some of those ingredients, like rose oil, are already full of uh, components themselves. Uh, or we can use also little, what we call little notes by themselves that are already composition. If I want a, a banana effect on something, I can use the banana that someone has created already, and this already has 10 or 20 ingredients by itself, and then it would be one line in the recipe. But, so you can see how it becomes very uh, complex. Uh, the one thing also that is very specific to the sense of smell is, and this is due to the law of physics and if you know thermodynamics, between a real system, what is called real system, so the reality of life and ideal modelization. Uh, and that's very different from music. If you, if you are a good musician and you know your notes, you can create a song in your mind and you can sing it to, you, uh, to yourself in your mind before writing it on paper. Or you can look at a sheet music and sing the song in your mind, correct? Whether you have exactly the right tone or the right tempo, but at least you have the thing. In perfumery, so that's a big, big difference, you can't have that. And that's because of the laws of, as I said, physics and chemistry, you cannot escape it. Uh, you cannot predict the, the interaction between um, bon, you could argue two molecules, it's kind of a simple system. As soon as you have three, four, and then you have 10 or 15 or 50 and 80, it's impossible. Meaning, uh, if you're really talking about an order you've never seen before, uh, or a formula that you've never seen before, and you look at this formula, you cannot predict what it's going to smell like. And I know some perfumers, they do say, oh, I could smell it already in my mind, and then I just write it down. And so if that happens, Either way, you could already smell it in your mind and then you wrote it down and it smelled already almost on target or you see a formula and you can predict what it's going to smell like. It means you have seen that formula before. It means you have seen that scheme before. And so, uh, of course, you know it's going to smell in that kind of family or not. But if it's a really a, a brand new formula, and sometimes it doesn't mean that the ingredients have to be brand new, it's just a very new combination and I'm going to just take the example of uh, vanillin, the molecule found in vanilla, or whether you take vanillin or vanilla, they smell different. But this sounds like very obvious, and this is something we use a lot. And I guarantee you, each time you put some in a fragrance, each time you have the surprise. You don't know the level at which it's going to start to be very, very sweet. It can start to be a bit woody first, and then it, start, it goes into the sweetness. Uh, and you don't, you don't know what, usually there are always a few ingredients that are going to clash with that vanilla and those ingredients are going to be made very dry. It's, well, you have to see it, to smell it, to understand. But what I'm saying here, this is a big difference in creation, in the creation process. We don't have a Photoshop in perfumery. We don't have um, uh, the computerized uh, assisted, um, assistant software like you have in uh, architecture. Uh, you, you go by trial and error. So of course, if you have a lot of experience, uh, you can smell, you can, uh, you know where, either where you're going or where you want to go, you, you, you wear a formula, you smell it, 
and then you see what you have to modify to try to redirect it in the way where you want to go. But this is how you work. And I'm talking here uh, from uh, young perfumers to people who have spent uh, 30, 40 years in perfumery. This is still how we create. It's trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, because you cannot predict when you add an ingredient to a formula how it's going to, to act in that formula. Um, That's very... Uh, Interesting, but it's also a There's a fellow uh, uh, researcher in Australia, his name is David Lang, who showed several years ago uh, an effect that we still don't really understand in, in humans, among humans, human psychophysics, but true also in, in animals that have been tested as well, which is if I gave even him four or five uh, monomolecular chemicals, that is some things that had specific odors, and then I gave them to you, I gave two of them to you, you could tell me which two were in the mixture. Or three, you could tell me which three were in the mixture. But just about the time you hit four, and certainly by five, it's impossible to know what's in the mixture. Then it becomes something that's not, no longer analytically yeah. um, separable. It becomes yet another odor, and often quite unpredictable. Quite unpredictable from what you're adding into it. And we see this even among perfumers. So this is true even among experts. Huh? Yes. So it's not like I smell something or any uh, perfumers any perfumer could smell something and then write you the list of 50 ingredients. Uh, it, when we describe a fragrance, you will notice we always mention three, four, five descriptors, and then that's it. We stop there, and that, that goes extremely. So we go from things that are like green, woody, fruity, then we can say the fruit is more like a pineapple, or the woody note is very like blonde wood or very musty like, uh, like dirt. Uh, we can say things like that, and then, and then that's it. We don't, we don't write the formula of 80 ingredients. Then, of course, if you wait, if I'm talking about skin, uh, what we do, then you wait another half hour. So some of the ingredients have evaporated. Then you smell again. Then you peel the onions, the onion if you wish. Then you see another two or three facets that are popping up now. So little by little, you can recreate uh, a fragrance. Well, we also have uh, machines in, in chemistry to, uh, to do that for us huh, now. But, uh, so by the nose, you can see really how a fragrance is built. You start to, to know more than the five or six. But at any single, any single time, you can only see, this is very true, huh? and, you, and you see the, 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 the fragrance description that we have in our database for any fragrance that comes out on the market or for any a new uh, uh, ingredient. Uh, each time it's, voila, it's like three, four, five at the most descriptors, yeah. and, then, and then, then that's it. So this was to show, uh, for me, the world we are now, because we use uh, fragrances in only very limited way. What you see on the market, number one, in the stores, uh, you have to know it's only, I would say, 30% of what we can do in perfumery. Eh? Uh, what you see in the store, which is an end product that has been filtered and filtered and filtered through a whole project by different teams, by uh, different for different reasons. Uh, bon, the perfumer, but then also you have the marketing team, the brand, the the, the economic uh, data, and etc. And uh, so at the end, you go in a, in a certain uh, area. But there's much, much more we can do with all these ingredients. We have more than 2,000 ingredients in our uh, catalog. And, uh, and fragrances can be used for many other things. So already on skin, we could do things much, much different. And then also you could have a scent in that room, for instance. You could have a scent associated with a lot of buildings, offices, and, and things. You could play with that. The scent, the scent could be changing. Uh, just like 
today it's obvious to have music in certain places or at least lighting has been worked for uh, certain purposes to make people feel comfortable or to make people feel awake or uh, to focus on something or to, so that people remember better. And we know the sense of smell is linked to memory in a much stronger fashion than the other senses. So that should be also used. And so for me, when I see, for instance, a building without, without a scent, it's like looking at a picture like that. And then you would have some scent going on in the building that would, uh, that's okay, that would, go, that would go like this, you see? You go from here, and nowadays we, to that. that. That gives you another dimension, that gives you some information about the place or about what you're doing or about your project or your product or whatever. Uh, some information that can be controlled. Sometimes it uh, betrays what you want to hide. Sometimes, uh, when very often if it's worked, it, make, it makes it just much more beautiful, enjoyable, uh, etc. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a non-profit program at the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run at Science in the City. Shoot us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.